0: Uh, I'm excited to be in the Word this morning. I hope you're still there. Uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 5, that's where the scripture reading was from uh, this morning. To be honest with you though, I have been really wrestling with how to tackle this next segment of Kings. As we've been noting, we've been stepping through the books of First and Second Kings. We made it through all the way, uh, th- all the way through chapter 3 last week. And I knew that this was coming. Uh, a, a section of this book was coming in which I had to really wrestle how I was going to best examine what the Word of God has to say. Essentially, the predicament before me is the chapters 4 through 11 tell one basic story. First uh, Kings 4 through 11 are essentially a very broad and very detailed at times but very general overview of the reign of King Solomon. We've seen how he got to the throne and we've seen how God blessed him while he's on the throne in chapter 3 with this abundant blessing of wisdom. And here in chapters 4 through 11 it can almost feel like a digression. It can almost feel like a pause in the narrative because it focuses so squarely on Solomon and specifically on the construction of the temple. And there's lots that go on in and around that construction. In fact, chapters 4 through 11, if you read them, it details so much about what Solomon does, kingly errands, these treaties that he makes with other nations, all of these business ventures. It's so interesting to uh, read these chapters and come away with how much of a businessman Solomon was, especially as it details these import-export ventures that he does, and all of the building projects he oversees for the kingdom of Israel and uh, in and around. On Jerusalem too and the interesting thing to me is the fact that all of these details all of these stories for the most part in especially chapters 4 through 10 are relayed are given to us in very positive terms and I think that's important because most of all I, I, may, I won't I won't speak for you but most of the time when I think of Solomon I think of him as a tragic figure I think of him as a very tragic king from which I have to learn things not to do. And we assume the worst about King Solomon a lot of times. And I think that's true to a degree. uh, There's a lot that we can learn from most of the end of his life and how he failed, which we're going to get to in a couple weeks but for the better part of his time um, as king, and he ushers in, Solomon ushers in an era of, of great prosperity for the kingdom of Israel. He ushers in a time of peace, the likes of which Israel has never seen up to that point, and the likes of which Israel has never seen since that point. He's an unparalleled king in a lot of ways. And this is no accident, of course. This isn't uh, just happenstance. This isn't just merely the, the sort of the right set of historical circumstances. It's not the stars aligning for Solomon. This is God's doing. The peace that he brings about, the prosperity that they experience are, uh, are tremendous blessings that come directly from God himself. Remember, uh, go, go back to chapter 3 really quick. Because remember what God promises him. Remember, he makes this incredible request. Give me an understanding heart. And what does God respond? He says, verse 12, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there is none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. You're the wisest man ever. There's never going to be one uh, wiser than you that will walk the face of this earth. But notice, verse 13, I have also given thee, that which thou hast not asked, the things that you did not request or require or ask of me, I'm still giving them to you, anyways. Things that he says, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. You're going to be an unparalleled king in riches and honor and in wisdom. This is God's fulfillment, the prosperity that we see. In these chapters, the abundance of wealth that is noted in these chapters is the fulfillment of God's promise. That these, quote, other things, the other things that you didn't ask for, they're going to come about in very profound ways. God's going to elevate Solomon and this kingdom of Israel to untold heights of prominence and power because of God's faithfulness. That's what I think these chapters are meant for us to see. Essentially, chapters 4 through 10 give us almost like a a guided tour, so to speak, of Solomon's magnificence. This is how great Israel was. Again, remember, the, the historian who's writing these books, he's writing to Israelites who have been exiled He's writing to exiles who might forget or might have wrong memories or jaded memories perhaps of these long generations previous to them. And here this historian is giving them an incredible grand reminder of the splendor of of the kingdom of Israel. This is, so to speak, this is how great we fell. This is meant to astound us and to astonish us with the majesty and the might of the kingdom of Israel. So before we, before we sermonize Solomon, before we sort of condemn him for his wealth and, and, and the things that lead to his downfall, I think it's worth pausing on this point that these are reported to us in favorable ways, <laughs> The historian isn't making sort of a judgment call on Solomon. At least not yet. <laughs> He's not making that point yet. <laughs> he will soon. Because I think so often. And I'm so guilty of this. Of, I, I, I'm, I'm so guilty of going to the man Solomon. And just reaching out for that point. Of, of trying to assume that all of this abundance of wealth. Is what led to his downfall. And by rights that's partly true. But also it's. Half true. Because again, this abundance of wealth and prosperity and, and the things and the success that he enjoys is from God. It's the blessing of God's people in a very real and profound and palpable way. I understand though. It's easy to read these chapters and we're going we're gonna to highlight some of them. We're not going to read chapters 4 through 10. We're going to preach on several of those portions. It's easy to arrive at that point of this, 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 uh, this sort of juxtaposition with the wealth that, that Solomon receives, especially if you look at chapters six through seven. Just you don't have to read them. But I'm going to read a couple of verses in and, in and throughout them. Because these chapters detail the construction of the temple. Both inside and outside. And they go into such detail, it can easy to become numb to all of these references to these elaborate stones. These very precious uh, gems and stones that are being used in the construction of the temple. And all of the references to gold uh, throughout uh, the building materials. Uh, look at verse uh, 20 of chapter 6. Uh, this is in the middle of describing sort of the, the inside of the temple. And it says in the oracle, which is in the, in the holy of holies. And the forepart, was 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in breadth and 20 cubits in height thereof. And he overlaid it with pure gold. And so covered the altar which was of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold. And he made a partition by the chains of gold before the oracle. And he overlaid it with gold. And the whole house he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the house. Also the whole altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold and on it goes. In fact, from chapter 6 verse 20 down through verse 32, uh, the historian mentions gold some ten times. He's trying to get it in your mind. This is how elaborate and this is how extravagant this place was. In chapter 7 uh, from verse 15 down through the end, we have even more details specifically regarding all the bronze and brass workings that were in, in the temple. All these furnishings which decorated the interior there. All these costly stones. All these precious materials. Solomon spared no expense when it came to this house for his God. Notice uh, verse 48 of chapter 7. Notice, this, uh, notice what the historian is here trying to impress upon us. And Solomon made all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord. The altar of gold and the table of gold whereupon the showbread was. And the candlesticks of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left before the oracle. With the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold. And the bowls, and the snuffers, and the basins, and the spoons, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house to wit, of the temple. So was ended all the work that the king Solomon made for the house of the Lord. And Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver, and the gold, and the vessels Did he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. All of those little things, the bowls and the, and the hinges and the spoons, all these little things that he's thinking of, all of them are overlaid or made out of pure gold. It can make us think of all this extravagance and we even get further testimony. Let me just read this verse from chapter 10. To give you more of a heightened sense of this, uh, the, the opulence of Solomon's kingdom. Chapter 10 verse 21. Notice what the historian notes. He says, And all King Solomon's drinking vessels, every single one of them, were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Why? Because silver was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. It was chump change. <laughs> Silver was was like just coming across a copper penny on the ground. You don't even bother yourself to pick it up. It's it's accounted of nothing. This is how extravagant and successful and prosperous this kingdom was. Solomon's kingdom was a blessing. And it was truly seen to be blessed. This isn't figurative language. This isn't some sort of exaggeration by the historian trying to sort of make a point. This is a literal description of Solomon's lavish assembly of God's house. Everything, everywhere you look, is meant to drive your heart and your thoughts with the glory of God. Yes, you see, I think in another sense... All of this success and prosperity that we've been noting is is somewhat trying to hint for us, give us a glimpse at at the glory we all, yes, all God's people will one day enjoy in God's heavenly kingdom. In a very, in a very small, but I think in a very, very real way, the majesty of Solomon's Israel is meant to give us a sneak peek of God's majesty. This is a sampling of how wondrous and glorious Zion is going to be. Zion is that name all throughout the Old Testament, which is meant to refer for refer to this wonderful heavenly eternal kingdom of God's people. And all of this gold here. It's meant, to, it's meant to point us to the glory of Yahweh, the glory of Jehovah, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Solomon, and the God of you and me right here, right now. This is how glorious it's going to be. I'm reminded there's this, uh, of, we'll just go there, Revelation chapter 21. I was reading and studying and, and reflecting on this passage. and I was reminded of Saul, uh, uh, or excuse me, Apostle John's vision of the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. Chapter 21, verse two, and I, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This new Jerusalem, this wonderful, glorious, majestic kingdom, which comes down, which John sees, which has all of the perfection and righteousness of the throne of the kingdom of God, is there for all the people. And if you go on and you read verses 10 through 27, note how he describes this kingdom it has jasper walls and it has and it has uh, sapphire and emerald foundations and it has gates that are made completely out of pearls and it has a completely pure gold skyline you want to talk about opulence you want to talk about majesty This new kingdom, this Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven is filled with all sorts of elaborate structural and architectural details we can't even comprehend. (laughs) In a small, very small way, we're given a glimpse of what that is going to feel like with this description of the temple. This glorious and majestic kingdom on whose throne sits this king whose name is Jesus. I think that's what the historian is here trying to do. Back in 1 Kings 6 and 7. He's trying to give you this feeling of almost uncontainable glory. All this gold is meant to point us to that. And I'll concede (laughs) reading chapters 6 and 7, especially, they're kind of (laughs) tedious. It's really just talking about building details. It's almost as if, for me, maybe you get really excited about this. I would not get excited about this. But if you gave me a blueprint for a building, that's what this would be. I don't get excited because I have no idea how to read that or understand it or make sense of it. Maybe you do and you're like, this is my thing. This is my jam. The, the, it's not my jam, so I don't really get excited about that. And that's essentially what we have here. It's all these qubits and measurements and things that are happening, and this is the way it has to be constructed, and all of these complex details. It can seem really tedious. And it's there for a single purpose, it's there to give us this impressive view of what it looks like when God dwells with his people. Did you remember? That was that word that was used in Revelation 21. That word dwell. It's an important word. Notice in chapter 6, there's another word that's repeated all throughout this chapter. Actually, it's repeated 32 times in all of these verses. Notice verse 1, and it came to pass in the four in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zif, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. That word house, repeated 32 times in this chapter. Each time it carries the meaning, it carries the reference to a dwelling place, and a residence, a home. It's the abiding presence of God. You see, this is going back to God's promise. God's promise to David is that one of his sons would build a house for Jehovah. Go with me, I know we're going to a bunch of places. Go with me to First Chronicles chapter 17. This you might want to highlight. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And actually keep your finger here. We're going to be going back to this chapter a couple times this morning. At the end of David's life. David was possessed with this notion of building a house for God. And God prevents him because of all of the violence that happened in David's life. And what does God promise him? Notice verse 11, and it shall come to pass when thy days be expired, he's talking about David, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. This is a fulfillment of the promise right here. That God is making to David. I'm going to raise up one of your sons. A son of David is going to be raised up to sit on the throne of the house of David forever. And he's going to build me a house. And here we have Solomon doing just that. This promise is coming to reality. So therefore when we're reading all of this text about gold and, and silver and bronze and brass and all these utensils and these doors and these hinges and all this elaborate framework and construction work. It's, it's, it's not a sign that Solomon and Israel had given themselves over to externalism. It's not a sign that, that they were making idols out of these things. <laughs> At least not yet. In the middle of all this, it's a sign that God was with them. This majesty is right because of the majesty of Jehovah. It's meant to point to him. Go to chapter 6 of of 1 Kings. Because right in the middle, it's so fascinating to me. Right in the middle of all these details about construction projects and and measurements and, and furnishings. In the middle of all of that. There is inserted a word which came to Solomon. Notice verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying concerning this house which thou art in building if thou wilt walk in my statutes. And execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them. Then I will perform my word with thee which I spake unto David thy father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. So in the middle of all of that elaborateness comes this word from God. Which reminds Solomon and yes all of the rest of the people that I care about one thing. Because you see, I think this exchange it represents God's concern, not just for the temple, but for the people who would populate it. That all, of this, all of this extravagance, all of this gold and silver and bronze and brass and all these things, those are good and right and it is right that you were to decorate this place with them. But they mean nothing if it is not genuine. God's reminder to Solomon is that all of this cedar and stone and all of these elaborate and amazing and massive stones that are being used here to construct this place, this house for the Lord, are not the objects of worship. He is. He's the object of their worship. He's the one that all of their attention is to be driven towards and that he's the one that deserves all of their hearts. That's why he's stressing, if all of you keep my statutes and execute my judgments, I will perform all of the promises that I have made with thy father David. This should describe our worship. The, 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 all of the ornateness of the temple, all of its, uh, its elaborateness, all of its extreme majesty and extravagance is good and great. Only as we, the worshippers, are pointed to the one who truly is good and great. Jehovah, the God of this place. And this is the point he's making to Solomon. That all of this stuff is supposed to point to me. Is supposed to drive you to see me. Therefore we have to make this wonderful point. That this temple and all of, its, all of its furnishings. All of its incredible complex structures. Is a sign. It's a symbol. It's a sacrament of God's presence. God's dwelling with them. And for them. Such, I think, is what that word house implies. Notice he says they're beginning this uh, to build the house of the Lord. And then he says in verse 13, and I will dwell among my people. You see, what I love about this chapter, especially chapter 6, is the historian goes to such great lengths to firmly root this event into history. Did you notice that in verse 1 of chapter 6? And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziph. Which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. (laughs) And if you notice at the end of the chapter in verse 38. He basically repeats the same thing of when they finished it. Those seven years of construction. It takes seven years to uh, firmly uh, build and construct this whole uh, building. It's firmly rooted in history. Then, the second month of the Hebrew calendar, which is around April or May of our calendar, in the fourth year that Solomon took the throne, in the 480 years since the people of Israel exited out of Egypt under the guidance of God and under the leadership of Moses, this is now where we are finding our dwelling. <laughs> you see, you see what this temple here is representing? It's representing that uh, uh, all of God's promises are coming true and are true. God's people who were wandering and who were restless and who are unsettled for all of those years are now building a place where God dwells. They are now finding themselves settled just as he promised. It goes back to chapter 5 of 1 Kings. Remember what Solomon says? He confesses. My father couldn't build this place, verse 4. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side. We are now settled. We are now firmly established. This place is for all of the promises of God to be remembered. That God's word is true. God's word for us is coming about. That he had promised he would bring us out and settle us. And look, now this place is now here. This is Solomon's initial attempt, intent behind this place, this house for the Lord. It's a place for all of God's people to be reminded of God's unfailing promises. Think, think about those four hundred and eighty years. Since they, exited the, uh, since they exited slavery and bondage in Egypt. All those years of wandering. All of those years of unsettled and un, uh, uh, unrest. All of that stress and strain over whether God's word was true. He promised something a long time ago. And now it's coming true. Now it is here. You see, this isn't just something we can pass over or go over really quickly. The historian of this book is here making a remarkable, uh, profound statement about history. That throughout all of those long centuries, almost five centuries of unrest and distress and all of that uh, horrible violence that these people endured, God's plans were moving forward to this moment. To this time in which all of his designs would come to fruition. In which the building of the temple could be established. Those years of war. Those years of wandering. Those years of famine. Those years of violence. Those years of slavery. Were powerless to hinder what God promised to do. They were powerless against what God said would happen. Here is my promise to you. You want to know what his promise is? Listen. Listen to Exodus chapter 6. Again, I know I'm bouncing around, but I want you to see this wonderful, wonderful word from God. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. This is a promise that God is giving to Moses. Before the Exodus. Before the people of God go out of Egypt. Exodus 6 verse 2, God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God which bringeth you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and I will give it to you for an heritage I am the Lord. He promised Moses, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to settle you. And I'm going to be your God and I'm going to dwell with you. And 480 years later, it's true. <laughs> 480 years later, all that he had promised to do is now true. That, you see, this laying of the foundation of the temple signaled all of these promises were fulfilled. That God had brought them out. He had delivered them and he had now settled them. I wonder what this must have been like for the Israelites in this day. A thousand plus years of history. You can go back even more further in history and look at the promises God made to Abraham in Genesis 17 and such. They're here now. They're settled. There's rest on every side as Solomon says. This temple is a symbol, a sacrament of God's presence, of God's promises. And I think about this, because uh, in our own historical moment, in our own day, we might feel as though we are in a period of just untold stress and strain. We might feel as though the world is burning, the world's ending. Maybe you're a little bit doubtful about the things of God, or maybe a lot doubtful, <laughs> How in the world can what he says come true? I can't see it. I can't. I can't even make sense of what's happening in our present life. It doesn't make sense. Maybe you wouldn't openly admit that, but that's what's uh, what's inside your heart. <laughs> that you look at the news. God bless you, and you feel like everything is ending. <laughs> it keeps you on ends. It keeps you on edge. It keeps your fing- your fists clenched because you're nervous about the kingdom of God. I can assure you that there were some Israelite generations who felt the exact same way. Imagine being in like year 200 of that 400 years when this is not fulfilled and you have this promise and you have the present and it's not seemingly coming about. God, where are you? God, you've promised to settle us and here we are. We're in the midst of more upheaval, more famine, more violence. More unrest. The Israelites were not too dissimilar to us in 2021. Not being able to see what God's word says and how it makes sense with what we're seeing in front of us. There's too much unrest, God. There's too much upheaval. There's too much wickedness and sin and injustice but you see, just as this temple was being laid, and as, it, as, as the foundation was being settled, it reminded the Israelites, and so too ought it to remind to us, that there should never be any panic when it comes to the kingdom of God. Because God's kingdom is God's prerogative, and it is Unstoppable. 400 years of untold violence and ridicule and hatred and bloodshed can't stop it. And our moment right now can't stop it either. God's kingdom is unstoppable and his promises are true and they are going to come about in his timing, in his way. He's the governor of history and it progresses according to his purposes. That's the thing that's sometimes frustrating. That God's sovereignty extends over timing. (laughs) And why, God? Why wouldn't you just do this now? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His plans don't often align with what ours seem to say or think. So therefore, what is our remedy The same remedy that the people of Israel were made to be reminded of as they walked into the temple. That the only remedy for now and the future and all of our days is to lean on the everlasting arms and the unfailing promises of Jehovah God. No matter what season of life we're in. No matter where we are in our current moment. Those promises never fail. And when we come to church, when you cross that threshold into this building this morning, that's what it's all all, all been about. That's what it's all been pointing towards. We're we're here to be reminded and have our faith renewed. and, And the fact that what Jesus has said is true and that what he has promised to come about will come about regardless of what the present looks like. Regardless of what our current moment says, Jesus' words are truer than our current moment. They are truer and fuller and richer and they have all kinds of majesty and it's going to come about, yeah, no matter what our present day looks like. His words are true as being fulfilled right in our very day. Not one promise that God has ever uttered has slipped his mind. He's never forgotten one little thing that he's promised to do. And nothing, not even the last whatever how many months it's been, it felt, it's felt like 10 years. None of that has been able to stop God's plans. Because you want to know? <laughs> Go back to 1 Chronicles 17. I, I just love this so much. I get so giddy talking about this. Because you want to know what he promises to David. It's not just that Solomon is going to build God a house. He gives him an even better promise. Notice again verse 11. And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired. When David, when you're dead and gone, that thou must go to be with thy fathers. I'm going to raise up thy seed, a son after you, which shall be of thy sons. And I will establish his kingdom And he shall build me a house. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house. And in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forevermore. You know what God is promising to David. Hey, you want to build me a house? Guess what? I'm building you a house. I'm establishing my kingdom through you. This is the promise that He's given to us. It's this. This is so awesome because when you read, go go here. Go to John chapter fourteen. You got to see this. John fourteen. This adds so much weight to what Jesus says in John fourteen. God's going to build us a house. And how does he say it? Look at John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be dismayed. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He's building us a house. His kingdom is sure and it is true and it is coming about no matter what it looks like. God's kingdom is unstoppable. And we have this assurance. It's from Jesus himself. See, we have a true and a better assurance than the people of Israel. Precisely because we have the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Christ. He is our assurance that all of these things are true and yes and amen, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1. All of God's promises, it says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, are yes and amen. That this one Jesus, as it says in John chapter 1, he is the dwelling place of God. His kingdom Is as sure as his promises. And has any of those ever failed? Has any of those ever waxed or waned or or gone wrong? Not by one single degree. Or as Jesus himself says, not by one jot or tittle. (laughs) Those tiny little tick marks that made up the Hebrew language, they're so small and one could change the face of a word. He says not even one of those is out of place. Have you ever been writing and you you put a dot over an eye but it's like way away from far away from where the eye is and it just it doesn't even look like the same word. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. <laughs> None of his promises are out of place, misaligned, or wrong, or wrongly interpreted. He is saying, all of my promises are true in me. They are true in Jesus Christ. The yes and the amen, the fulfillment of all of what God has said. So, we have to ask ourselves this morning, where are you doubting God's plan? Where, where are you doubting what God is doing? I have to confess with you, this is this is. I speak to myself. I had a conversation with a pastor friend a long time ago about the quote pastoral mental toughness that such a season of life that we've been through uh, 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 necessitates. And if you if you go back and listen to a lot of the sermons that I've preached, they've they've had similar themes because it's been my burden for myself and I and I and I would say it is likely yours too to double down on the fact that we are ruled and reigned by King Jesus and that none of this is accidental none of this is circumstantial none of this is just random this is purposeful by God and we are here because God has led us to this moment and he is king and he is faithful and nothing has fallen by the wayside his promises are true his tr- promises are sure even in this random season of life where I wish could go away. It's not random. God is in it. And just as that temple reminded his people that they are now settled with the dwelling place of God. You have that too in Jesus. The fulfillment of all of God's promises. May you never doubt what God is doing. Even if you don't know what he's doing. Because God's promises are sure and true and everlasting. May we walk in his promises with that certainty. I think if I can relate to you what has grown in me. Is the certainty of this word. Not to say that I was doubting it before, but just to say, it is so true. It is so sure, and you can stand on it. You can believe it. These promises, they are real. Your sin is real, but Jesus' promise to forgive you of that is just as real. And yes, the darkness in this world is real, but what does Jesus say in John 16? Don't worry about that. I've already overcome the world already. My peace I give to you is far better than you ever know. This word is true. This is the word of the King of Kings. Let us pray.